Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Thursday, July 5th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The year was 1991. The Gulf War had been settled before we knew to call it the first Gulf War, an acknowledgement that it hadn't really been settled. Hannibal Lecter was horrifying us on the big screen. And on the airwaves, a balloon-pantsed impresario from Oakland was teaching us that he was too legit to quit. Cut to today, and the man who's doing the teaching is Scott Pruitt, as we find a person who is actually too corrupt, too corrupt for Trump. That's a long way of saying that Scott Pruitt is out. And in the resignation letter that he submitted, we found out that the now former EPA administrator wrote his own vows for the ceremony. Let me read the third of three paragraphs that Scott Pruitt wrote to uh, dear President Trump. My desire in service to you has always been to bless you as you make important decisions for the American people. I believe you are serving as president today because of God's providence. I believe that same providence brought me into your service. I, can we get some background music for this? Great. I pray as I have served you that I have blessed you and enabled you to effectively lead the American people. Thank you again, Mr. President, for the honor of serving you. And I wish you Godspeed in all that you put your hand to. Your faithful friend, Scott Pruitt. Faithful friend makes it sound like a basset hound. Your faithful servant. And I know, upon reading that resignation letter, or does God actually have to read? He just knows it existed. He's omniscient. I bet the Lord is saying to himself, Ah, my servant Scott, go forth and do poison the fields. And where they are green, make them brown. And taketh a wife and have her taketh a Chick-fil-A franchise, and anoint thine self with the most holy of liniments and lotions. You know what? Have an aid go find that, because you're busy unbanning pesticides. Yes, verily, it is in my image that you do this wonder-making work of being fruitful and causing fruit flies to multiply, and the locusts and the creeping things. So it is said, so it is written. Good job, Scott. You have served me well. Now serve that party of four at table five. They want their waffle fries. End of an era. Start of a new nightmare. On the show today, I spiel about a ubiquitous guest these days on many chat shows. Hint, this guy supported Bernie, wears a baseball cap, directs documentaries, and gets way too much credit for being a sensible human being on this earth. No more hints. But first, if you thought the U.S. was the only country where the executive has taken aim at civil society. Well, there's Poland. Populism versus the rule of law, Warsaw edition, with Ian Bremmer, up next. (laughs) 
let's turn to the Supreme Court, not America's, but Poland's. Their justices, just like in the U.S., offer checks and balances to the legislature, to the executive branch. But the politicians of the ruling law and justice party in Poland are trying to throw off the constraints of law by purging Supreme Court justices. Justices in Poland aren't appointed for life, which, by the way, seems the smarter way to do it. But the chief justice, who is a thorn in the side of law and justice, is appointed until 2020. However, there's a new law that is forcing her into retirement. And we're seeing essentially a purge of Polish courts, which have up to this point been somewhat of a check to the populist bordering lately on the authoritarian law and justice party. There are protests over this in Poland, and the EU wants to and has tried to intervene to stop Poland from doing this. Joining us now to discuss this is Ian Bremmer. He's the president and founder of the Eurasia Group, the leading global political risk research and consulting firm. Hello, Ian. Hey, Mike. Good talk to you. So I know this reared its head a few months ago, and then the president of Poland, who is in law and justice, somewhat surprisingly vetoed these measures. But what's happened since then? Well, we now have this act that came from December originally, where 27 judges of the Polish Supreme Court were made retired as of this week. And it's uh, right after the European Commission actually officially launched an infringement procedure to protect the independence of the court, right? Mm-hmm. The, uh, the chief judge, this woman, uh, Malgorzata Gerzdorf, is very popular. And she, among others, refuses to comply. And she has announced that she is going to continue to work until the end of her term in 2020. And as of right now, she's on vacation, probably because she's trying not to politicize herself uh, in the whole process, as hard as that is. So that's kind of where we are. There have been some demonstrations. Uh, they're, they're not big demonstrations in the context of, I mean, they look big when you see them you know, on a screen. But the reality is uh, we've seen much bigger from Eastern Europe. Um, this doesn't seem to be an issue that is driving a lot of attention for the average poll. Yeah. And I, I suspect it won't change outcomes in upcoming elections where President Duda and the Law and Justice Party are likely to continue to succeed. Why is, and since you uh, threw some good Polish pronunciation on me, I will try to say Pravo i Sprawadivost, which is the Law and Justice Party. Hope I got that right. Mm-hmm. Why do they think they could get away with this, um, not only in terms of domestic politics, but internationally? Well, internationally is much easier. And that's because if you were going to sanction them, it would require unanimity from the EU. And the trends in uh, European countries are indeed with the Polish government. I mean, since you and I last spoke, Mike, you now have an Italian government, which is the most anti-establishment, certainly since World War II. You've had long-standing support from Prime Minister Orban doing quite well now in his government in Hungary. There are others. So I, I think, you know, as much as the Europeans will complain, they're not going to do anything. And in Poland itself, with the economy doing reasonably well, while there are certainly some urban intellectuals that are up in arms about the fact that their independent judiciary is being stripped away from them, this is not a topic 
that really resonates. So, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. I mean, this is one of many trends that we've seen in the last year. If this was the only one, it would be a small deal. It would be an outlier country that we'd expect to get back in line over time you know, with a lousy government. But it's not that. It's a big groundswell across Europe of people that think the system is rigged against them, yeah. are unhappy with established parties, you're going to see a lot more of this. And, and the fact that the Polish government is losing or is, is weakening the independence of the judiciary, I wish was the big story right now. But these stories are popping up everywhere in the West. I would guess that the lessons of their neighbors, Hungary, and the populism that we're seeing uh, throughout Europe is more of an influence on Poland than America ever could be. But I do know, I'm going to say an unfortunate pun here, but in polling, in public opinion polls, America has been historically more popular in Poland than in America. More Polish people have a positive attitude towards America than Americans have a positive attitude towards America. So do you think that the lesson of Donald Trump and what he represents has had any influence on uh, what we're seeing in Poland? Yes. Uh, I, I have not seen the most, uh, I don't remember the most recent Pew research polls on this, but I, I firmly would expect that Polish opinion about the United States will have deteriorated in the last couple of years, as it has in other countries across Europe, in part because the United States feels less committed to NATO. Poland is spending a lot more money on its own defense, but you've got Donald Trump saying, why are we doing that? enormous concerns about Russia. There is a belief in Poland that the president has been uh, certainly promoting that the Russians are behind the downing of that airplane that not only led to a number of ministers getting killed, but also his own twin brother. And that has become, you know, almost a cause celeb for his party and his political movement. And so in the context of that level of animus towards the Kremlin and towards Russia, much worse than just during the days of the Ukrainian crisis, the fact that Trump himself personally as the American president seems to be so willing to embrace the person of Vladimir Putin wants them back in the G7, wants to legitimize the annexation of Crimea. It really is a problem for the average poll. Okay, I want to ask a more global picture. Am I just naive to think that a once oppressed and repressed people will be more sensitive to authoritarianism, will be more sensitive to worrying about that it could happen here because it did happen there? I'm a little surprised that a country like Poland, that masses of people would be indifferent to this. Am I looking about it the wrong way? I think we should recognize that even in the face of some of the worst atrocities committed in the modern era, our memories, our individual memories, and sometimes our collective memories can actually be quite short. We should also not underestimate just how much generational change can change the narrative. Young South Koreans today weren't around during the Korean War, 
don't see the utility of American base on their ground, think the North Koreans are in some ways the more aggrieved party, and the Americans and more conservative nationalists in South Korea have brought a lot of troubles on themselves, and China's the future. Um, relatively young Germans are much more willing to support a nationalist German party because they don't remember the war because Nazism isn't real for them, doesn't mean anything to them. Yeah, and I also think this is something that may be just going on with me and my perception of things, but we say to ourselves, or I say to myself things like, oh, Germany, they're a they're, they're committed to liberal democracy, or a country like Austria is, or I look at what happened in Romania. They had big protests sort of staving off authoritarianism or populism. But in a lot of cases, these are kind of 55, 45% issues. I mean, it's not as if masses of people feel one way and can't be persuaded by, say, a couple clever ad campaigns or a hit of 0.5% to the GDP. That's right. And uh, one of the things that I found most shocking in recent research uh, is that some 16% of young Americans now think that military rule would be better for them than democracy. Now, to be fair, I think they think that because they don't think they live in a democracy. They think they live in a rigged system. But the fact that you could have that in the United States Mm -hmm. just means that, you know, kind of the country that I grew up in, or the country my mom grew up in, or my grandma grew up in, is kind of different than the country today. And technology is also speeding everything up, and it's hurting memory, and it also makes us feel like the most immediate thing is the most important in a much greater degree. And so I I, I do think that uh, we shouldn't take too much comfort in the notion that America's been the strongest big democracy out there for a couple hundred years. And so therefore, that means that we won't have any challenges in the next generation or two. Okay, I have two more questions. One is, what has the United States government done about what uh, Poland is doing to their courts? And what should the United States government be doing or saying? Well, we haven't done anything. And, and you know, you know that uh, the Trump administration much less so than even most American administrations, is not all that interested in promoting democracy. It's a much more transactional view on foreign policy. All countries promote their national interests. We shouldn't really care very much about what they do domestically. It's not about human rights, that sort of thing. I mean, in that regard, Trump foreign policy is very Chinese in orientation. What should we do? Uh, We should want a strong Europe. And wanting a strong Europe means that rule of law matters. But that's not Trump's interest. Trump actually told the French president recently, Emmanuel Macron, that he believed uh, that uh, the EU was even worse than China in terms of trade, which is a, on its face, ludicrous statement. But he's just not very interested in the EU. He thinks that a strong Europe is bad for the United States. I, I disagree. I think the facts on their merits show that that perspective is wrong. But to say what the U.S. should do implies you need a different president. Um, We're not going to have a different president anytime soon. The American people have spoken on that matter. And the last thing is, how much does this depend on the economic benefits these countries, these governments, are perceived by their people as delivering? Oban and law and justice come to power when things aren't going well, then under them things are going well. Do we credit them? I don't know. I don't think uh, Poland and Hungary are making the world economy whip back into shape. I think 
many macro factors are contributing to that. But but that's my question. How much is, if there's an economic downturn, will these uh, people be thrown out or should we look for something more calamitous? Uh, that's why I mentioned uh, this this story uh, about the, the Polish plane that um, had had the accident. You know, individual context really matters. And you get a charismatic figure in power who has a story that's compelling and that the people really get behind. And that can make up for a fair amount of economic hardship. I mean, the Russian economy has not been doing well recently. And Lord knows, I mean, between kleptocracy and Putin's refusal to invest long-term in things like education, uh, he's not been helping the people. But he's managed to drive a narrative of the strong Russian leader defending the Russians against all these threats, external and internal. And he's done very well as a consequence. So I think that in the United States, where you know, sort of, we worship the almighty dollar, we tend to see economic outcomes as much more fundamental as drivers for political factors than I think are always the case. And I'd be careful on this one. All right. Ian Bremmer is the president and founder of the Eurasia Group. And it might not seem it from the tone of our conversation, but if you want the most fascinating puppet-based commentary on international affairs, G Zero World is the place for that. The Eurasia Group is behind this puppet show. That's kind of fascinating. I'll just throw that out there. Uh, Thank you, Ian. My pleasure, Mike. Talk to you soon. And now the spiel. Michael Moore has a new movie out, and he's been making the rounds of talk shows. Because he is a consistent voice against the cultural, political, and economic forces of the right, and because now is the exact right time to loudly express dissatisfaction with those forces, he has hardly been challenged in really any of his assertions. Also, there's his choice of venue. So on The View, he put forth this argument. The Democrats, the Democrats have won the popular vote in six of the last seven presidential elections. Yeah. The Republicans have only won the popular vote once uh, since 1988. Yeah. That's, so the country we live in actually agrees with the Democrats on the issues. Now, that's true. But more started counting in 1992 for some reason. You know, of the five presidential elections before then, four popular votes went to Republicans. So Democrats have won seven of the last 12 elections. Okay, of course, the rules we play by are electoral college rules, as ill-conceived as they are, as inappropriately applied as they were in 2000. But let's also note, during this time of supposed American consensus on democratic policy, we have had elections other than presidential elections. Senate elections, House elections, gubernatorial elections, state legislative elections. And that over the last decade, Republicans have won a thousand more of those elections than Democrats have. So Michael Moore, on this point, I would put that in the category of refutable. Other statements seem more like bordering on the unhinged like when he was on Colbert last week and said this. When you read the paper every day or you watch the news, do you ever cry? I mean, do you ever tear up? Do you ever, does this ever happen to you these days? Sure, of course. It's right. It yes. happens to me now every day. I don't want to mock a man for, if it is indeed true, weeping daily over the news. 
Maybe the Scott Pruitt thing will give him pause in his daily sob, but do you do that every day? Would you say a well person does that? Call me callous. I would not say it is the most useful reaction. I would not look to the person who is crying daily over the news for tactical advice on how to reverse the course of the news. That said, he did allow this glimmer while on Colbert. I couldn't come on this show here if I didn't have hope, but, but let me... Then a few days later, he went on Bill Maher's HBO show and said this. I am not, I'm sorry, Bill, I am not going to participate in providing hope for people. Anybody who's hanging on hope, that implies there's no sense of urgency. This is not about somewhere over the rainbow. Optimism Every, is dangerous. Optimism yeah. is very dangerous. Yeah. This is not about warm and fuzzy now. This Seems is contradictory. But Moore is a showman. He knows he's playing a part. He's as much shtick as substance. He's a man who literally would not have a career if he just called ahead for an appointment. But Roger and Me, great documentary, great work of art, full stop, was a personal framing of how a company that he had close connection with affected a community that he had close connection with. That seems to be a formula for success. But ever since then, what he's been doing is spinning out that formula on a larger and larger and more widening level, losing expertise and credibility as the radius grew. Here he was on Larry King in 2008 discussing what should be in his area of expertise, GM. And I said that maybe we should take a look at General Motors in the auto industry. I think they're going belly up. I said that 20 years ago. Um, There won't be a General Motors next year, the way we know it. There won't be a General Motors next year. Well, there is a General Motors. When he was talking, GM had slipped behind Toyota in annual sales for the first time in 77 years. But these days, it set a record a year ago, selling over 10 million cars worldwide. First time that ever happened. Profits of over $12 billion a year. Michael Moore is a pessimist and a declinist, and he's overly dramatic. I guess TV hosts think he's approachable or figure their viewers in the Midwest will think he's relatable because he wears a baseball cap. People like me wear a baseball cap, he says. He literally said that the day or two after the election. He went on Morning Joe, he talked about the baseball cap, and he said that, don't mock Trump's baseball cap. I know the baseball cap crowd. And that is why he is held up as the oracle of the unwashed, the downwardly mobile white man whisperer. He would routinely give after the election all these answers about the forgotten white guy. He shamed the media in doing so. The media had a big appetite for shaming. In those moments, here is a version of what he said right after Trump won. The, the working class that has been um, so abused and attacked and their livelihood taken from them over these last really couple decades, they're at the point where they're so angry and full of so much despair that I could see that they were going to use the ballot box as an anger management exercise. This was a pretty popular explanation at the time before research came in. And what the research showed is that it wasn't really economic anxiety. It was cultural anxiety that drove the 2016 vote. By cultural anxiety, we mean white people becoming the minority and they were worried about that. But Michael Moore, the be-capped hero of the machinists, the mythic machinists of Michigan, he was there to tell you and to tell the elites that they were ignoring the economically disaffected white man. And that blinded them. And that also blinded the Clinton campaign. And that's why she lost the election. And yet, here is Michael Moore giving a speech in Washington 
in 2010. And yet there's so much the Democrats are trying to appeal to the crazy white guy. Forget about him. He's got a party. Bad advice. Of course, we should defer a bit to Michael Moore, we are told, because he called the Trump victory. Credits do. He did. Not only did he call it, he called the path to the White House, the Rust Belt states that he knows best. Of course, let's not forget that as a pessimist and a declinist, Moore also called the Romney victory in 2012. Uh, you know, Mitt Romney is going gonna, is gonna to raise uh, uh, more money than uh, Barack Obama. That should guarantee his victory. I think people should start to practice the words President Romney. So maybe we misremember the facts about Michael Moore and just remember the hats and the schlump and his revisionist take on what he said. We remember the good predictions, forget the bad. We remember he did a GM documentary. We forget that he's been wrong about GM for a while since. We give him credit for prescience when we should be questioning his judgment. Remember bowling for Columbine? That was about gun slaughters in school. He was on that issue early. But his explanations were daft. He said it wasn't about gun laws, but it was. And he spent quite a bit of time in the documentary linking the shooting at Columbine to the NATO intervention in the Balkans. By the way, that was an intervention that prevented a genocide. Here from Bowling for Columbine, here's Michael Moore discussing that point with Marilyn Manson. The president was shooting bombs overseas, yet I'm a bad guy because I've I've sang some rock and roll songs. And who's a bigger influence, the president or Marilyn Manson? I'd like to think me, but I'm gonna go with the president. Do you know that the day that Columbine happened, the United States dropped more bombs on Kosovo than any other time during that war. I do know that, and I think that that's really ironic, you know, that, that nobody said, well, maybe the president had an influence on this violent behavior, no, because that's, that's not the way the media wants to take it and spin and turn it into fear, because then you're watching television, you're watching the news. Maybe, informed of all these past statements, of all these errors, of all these leaps of logic, we should consider in that light Michael Moore's latest call to action. Here's Michael Moore's plan, as explained on the Bill Maher show. Well, I'll, like what? I'll, I'll join a million other people surrounding the United States Capitol. I will stand there. Oh. What kind of hippy dippy wavy gravy shit is that? Look, maybe it's true that Michael Moore really does speak to a forgotten portion of America that TV bookers don't know how to reach otherwise. You know, he holds the key to the hillbilly elegy demographic that a Colbert view, real time with Bill Maher viewer, wants to think might vote their way. I think that could be the case, but I think it's also probably pure nonsense. I think what Michael Moore is is a bunch of shtick and image and a kind of frumpy, slouch-shouldered anti-charisma that stands out in a slick media landscape, but offers little by way of true insight. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. They like to think of the Wednesday holiday not as a holiday, but a means to experiment with the two-day work week twice in a row. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is here with the key to having Wednesday as your one day off. You gotta pretend it's Sunday. You probably pretended it was Saturday, but then you woke up today to fully feel your folly. The gist. 
Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to print out everyone who issued an Independence Day series of threaded tweets recapping all the despair that they have for democracy, but, you know, in one convenient place. And then I'm going to bound it in leather. I'm going to emboss it. And I plan to smack myself in the head with it 1,776 times, as the founders intended. Oomperu depperu dupperu, and thanks for listening.